cool, cool. Welcome to the future. All right. All right, well, I think we can get started. So um, I'm sure we'll get a slow trickle. Um, so if you guys were here last week, which some of you were, some of you were not, but you've probably heard of Augustine. Um, this is Augustine or Augustine of Hippo that we're talking about. Last week, we, we kind of did a brief biography of his life. Um, Augustine of Hippo, born in 354, considered the most important theologian in the church from the time of Paul to the time of Martin Luther, and some say from the time of Paul until the next person comes along. So um, some people would put him above Luther in his importance. And uh, when I say importance, I, I really just mean the, what, what Augustine did, what he wrote, his life um, was, was pivotal for how we understand the scriptures, how we understand our salvation and our relationship to God, how we interpret the scriptures. So just keep in mind and, and always have in your head when you read the Bible, um, you're not a blank slate, you know, you, you're not coming to it with this completely open mind that no one else has influenced how you understand it and interpret it. Um, whether you realize it or not, Augustine, Luther, Anselm of Canterbury, all, all of these men that had kind of these um, big moments of clarity help you understand the scriptures. So they put meaning or they give you meaning for the words that are in the text. Um, and their biblical meanings, they, they've studied, they've um, made the connections, um, but the text itself was their source, and it's ours, but it, it, it's not like we come to it for the blank slate. So I just want you to kind of have that in your head when you think about these people. Um, they are not important as in, you know, the Lord has a, a great value on Augustine that he doesn't place on you as a believer, um, but he's a tool. In, in the scope of redemptive history, um, in the best sense of the word, he's the type of tool that helps you understand what God is teaching and revealing to us. So today we're going to talk about Augustine and Pelagianism. And uh, how many of you have heard of Pelagianism, or at least heard that word before? And uh, most of you probably heard it before. Um, it's not plagiarism, it's Pelagianism. But um, you're probably gonna you may know exactly what i'm talking about you may not it's not important right now um we're gonna get into it a little bit more so i'm gonna start oh i hate it when my fonts change like i i do this on uh, one computer and then i i switch to a different one and i haven't activated the fonts but um has anyone ever read the poem if by Red, rudyard kipling elijah thank you um so uh it's it's a relatively famous poem written in the late 19th century um rudyard kipling author of the jungle book so there was a uh a preacher a man who was preaching um in something kind of like a salvation army situation and he ended his sermon by reading 
this poem, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to do two sections out of it. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk. Let's see what that says. Well, if you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you but none too much, if you can forgive, fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. Let's see. I really need to see that part. I'm sorry, guys. You, you'll miss the punchline if I can't see it. <laughs> All right. Um, if you can forgive, fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. And as the, the preacher is, is quoting this poem, it's an exhortation to be a better person. And from the, the back of the, the crowd, a man yells out, and what if I can't? And, and that is really the argument being presented here. That, that's the issue. Um, it's your desire to do good and your ability to be good. And, and that, that's the, um, the ages old discussion. B.B. Warfield. B.B. Um, Warfield in answering the question, what is Calvinism? And, and this is a, a book, but this is just a little quote out of it. He says, there are at bottom, but two types of religious thought in the world. There's the religion of faith. There's the religion of works. All other forms of religious teaching, which have been known in Christendom, are but unstable attempts at compromise between the two. Um, and, and that's really the heart of the discussion. That's what Augustine is dealing with. Um, what is true Christianity? Who are you before Christ? What abilities, what capabilities do you have as a Christian? What power and authority do you have? What is God's? What is yours? Um, how do you do these things? So I'd like to start um, or introduce a, a prayer from Augustine. And uh, I'm going to keep my eyes open to pray it. You can keep your eyes open and pray it as well. If you ever prayed in the car, you know, you don't close your eyes while you're driving. So, uh, um, but Augustine, I think this is a very appropriate prayer. So let's pray this together and, and I'll say it. You can just say it in your head. Um, oh God, you are the light of the minds that know you, the life of the souls that love you and the strength of the wills that serve you. Help us so to know you that we may truly love you. So to love you that we may fully serve you. Whom to serve is perfect freedom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, in that, in that prayer, um, this, is, this is the central argument, the central discussion. What is freedom? Um, what kind of 
freedom do you have as a person? What kind of freedom does every man or woman have? Freedom, that, that great cry, it's not a distinctly American goal, but it has been a, a goal, a pursuit, the freedom of man um, as a whole, the freedom of the will. It's a discussion that has gone on for thousands of years. Um, so it's not modern. We take Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and we have meaning that we give to it. And Augustine has meaning that he gives to it. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. And we agree here, and Augustine would say, um, the faith is not of my own doing. The faith is the gift of God. Not just the salvation. The faith itself, the ability to believe, that's the gift of God that gives me the faith to believe, the grace, and salvation. Um, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. And this is a key text, but it is not the key text that they talk about. But just so you can feel the emphasis, because it would be very easily easy for me to say, for grace, you've been saved by through faith. This is not your own doing. Of course, I'm not saved on my own. My faith saved me. Um, and, and people like Pelagius make the emphasis that your faith, your belief, your good works is what saved you. And he's right, except it's not our faith that we had to begin with. Um, the faith was a gift. And, and the argument, the, the pivot point that they would say is that so no one may boast. If it is my faith, I can still boast. I can still boast that I believed. God saw that I was going to believe, and this was the common argument. Um, God saw that I was going to be a believing person, so he was gracious and saved me. Um, they wouldn't agree that everyone gets saved, but they know there's a difference between one person being saved or another. But if it's my faith, then I can boast. If the whole thing is a gift, if everything is not from my ability, my capabilities, my willingness, then I cannot boast. And, and that's the, the point. All right. So um, we talk about the doctrine of grace, and, and that's really what this is about. Uh, I, I don't, if you are familiar with it, which, which almost everyone probably is in here, and if not, I can recommend some good resources and we can talk about it afterwards, but I, I don't have the ability to go through everything today and talk about Augustine. Um, so there's not much emphasis on the doctrine of grace prior to Augustine, meaning um, between Paul and Augustine, there's a bit of a, a gap in emphasis. It's present in the Bible. We see it in the scriptures. Um, we see it in Paul, which is where we get our understanding, the doctrine of grace. There's some glimmers in Tertullian. Athanasius, Ambrose, um, but the emphasis isn't there. We don't hear the words justi justification by faith alone um, from Paul after Paul to Augustine in that space. We don't hear that kind of language. Um, we, we hear something very different. Um, so what, one of the things this book that I put up here, this is a book by Thomas Oden called The Justification Reader. And he pulls from a lot of early church authors 
and, and pulls out these texts from sermons, from what they would call homilies, which is kind of like a commentary or a sermon, um, from writings, from answers, their polemical works where they write an answer to a certain person um, that has this, this language of the doctrines of grace, that you're not saved by your own merit. Um, but a lot of, and as you'll see, I'll give you a couple examples. A lot of the early church pastors, writers, they don't focus on that. F.F. Bruce, in his book, The Spreading Flame, said the biblical doctrine of grace seems almost to go underground in the post-apostolic age, the time period after the apostles, to reappear only with Augustine. And I want you to keep the word emphasis in your head um, because it can be somewhat of a disheartening time to believe that the early church, you know, had they just left their whole understanding of Paul, Romans, Ephesians, um, the book of John, had they, they abandoned all of that? B.B. Warfield says, there is, so, there is no such gulf in the history of human thought as to that which is cleft between the apostolic and immediately seceding ages. And if you've heard or read anything about church history, you know this is, is kind of an issue. Um, it seems like in many sense that that period, they, they don't preach and teach the same way we preach and teach. They don't read the Bible in exactly the same way we do when it comes to the doctrines of grace, when it comes to our understanding of what is salvation. So Augustine was not the first to believe in grace, meaning that he was saved um, not of himself, but solely by the grace of God. Many, many people who came to the Lord believed in grace. They believed they were sinners. So if you ask yourself, what did an early Christian believe about their role in salvation? They would freely admit, hey, I'm a sinner. They would admit they needed God's help in order to be saved. They believed that they must live good, holy, and godly lives. Um, you know, th this kind of big overview of what is Christian belief. What they didn't have was the clarity and understanding of the scriptures. Um, so to give you some counter examples or other examples, the Trinity before the Council of Nicaea in 325 was believed, meaning um, everyone before 325 didn't sit around saying, you know, we got Jesus who's God over here and God the Father who's God over here and the Holy Spirit, there's another God. We worship all three of those gods. They didn't believe that. They believed in a real trinity, but they didn't have the language. And really, um, it took the antagonism or the, the attacks of Arianism um, to really force them to articulate what is the church really affirm as true. So when, when you think about church history, and, and usually the enemies of the church, people that are um, attacking Christianity for its progression, and it is a progression. It's a progression in, in, in clarity, not a progression in revelation, meaning um, God doesn't just start revealing stuff at 325 in Nicaea. He didn't keep it hidden and then say, okay, Nicaea is here. Now I'm going to show you what I really meant. 
It's there in the scriptures, but it's really a, a progression of clarity and understanding, meaning the church has a better handle on what is taught in the scriptures after controversies. You know, you, you, you see all these errors coming in and you look at it when they say Jesus is not really God and he was the first created being. The leaders and teachers and even the people are saying that that's not right. Jesus is God but they don't know how to put it together in words. They don't have a tight little doctrinal formula that, you know, God in the scriptures dropped down out of heaven. The Trinity, the word Trinity isn't used in the Bible, but the idea is there. And, and so um, you always want to keep that in mind. It didn't show up out of nowhere. Um, it was just clarified. Again, the two natures of Christ, Christ is fully God and fully man. They believed that before the Council of Chalcedon in 451. They believed that was true. We believe Jesus Christ is fully God. We believe he's fully man. But they didn't think through all the implications of what that meant yet. So it took the Nestorian and Monophysite controversies to really make that clear. And uh, one day I'm sure we'll talk about Nestorius and the monophysites. Um, so this is an example of a typical John Chrysostom. Um, you may have heard his name, Chrysostom. That name is the golden mouth. He's considered the best, most accessible preacher in the early church. He was called the golden mouth because he had a way with words. His homilies or his sermons are the easiest to read. Um, I actually... Pulled some out this morning because I was trying to read what he said on Romans 9 and, and try to make sure I was clear on what he was saying. But um, in one of his sermons, he said, all depends indeed on God. Great, John. That's, that's awesome. We agree with that. But not so that our free will is hindered. Oh. God does not anticipate our choice, lest our free will should be outraged. But when we have chosen, then great is the assistance he brings to us. Um, and, and this is common um, in that period. God is the one who saves you, but he helps you along. Um, and, and, you know, that even when, when Chrysostom was talking about Romans 9, and we have um, Jacob and Esau in the womb, you know, his explanation is that, Jacob was a good man, and Esau was a wicked man. He knew it before, and that's why he chose Jacob. Um, and that, that verse seems to say the exact opposite of that, that it wasn't because of anything they get, did, good or evil, but because of God's choice. Um, so th this is kind of the view. This is common. This is typical. This is everywhere preached and taught for the most part. Chrysostom He's contemporary to Augustine, meaning um, he was born about 12 years earlier. He's just a little bit older. His teaching on grace and free will was common. Um, he would say, we do what we can. We use our free wills to turn to God, and God turns to us and helps us. Augustine would say, no, that's wrong. God is our power, not our helper. God is the one that gives us the ability to do it, not the one that helps us along once we make the first step. Augustine was not the first person to believe in it, but he was the first 
in the church um, to clearly teach it, apart from the apostles and Paul. He learned much of his thinking from Ambrose. So um, when I say that, I mean Ambrose was preaching doctrines of grace. He wasn't saying them the exact same way we would say them. Because remember, we're this side of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, who lived after a thousand years of monastic and church hierarchical control, um, the Roman Catholic Church that, that, that pushed works and intercession only by way of the church, the monastic movement that as it developed, you would slowly burn years off of purgatory by how much you punished your body or you suffered or you, you said a certain amount of prayers. I mean, all these things, I mean, the Roman Catholic Church and monasticism for almost a thousand years built up works upon works upon works for you to do as a Christian to take time off of purgatory, which, you know, in, in that sense, they believed anyone that came into the Catholic Church, you were baptized into it, you're, you're going to heaven, but you got to burn for a little while in purgatory. That, that was their um, explanation for the verses about the wrath to come, about suffering, about um, being a, a good Christian. So Luther breaks free from all of that, and it must have been a breath of fresh air. Um, it must have been a whole new world. And, and so we get Luther's justification by faith because we feel Luther's suffering under trying to work his way into heaven. Yes. That speaks a little bit of the cultural context and control. Was there like a, because certain things weren't clarified at this time, was it kind of almost like a free for all of you can kind of teach and think as a, as a Christian leader? however you wanted and it kind of eventually forced clarity so during augustine's time yeah yeah so the, the question is um is there any kind of you know rule or standard by which all christians i'm going to try to rephrase that um would have to follow or is it kind of like the wild west of theology where you have an idea in the scripture and you bring it up and then somebody disagrees with you and then they kind of counterbalance um it's a little of both once you, because remember at this point, and um, there, we, we have councils and teaching, but the church was a pilgrim church before 300, 312 AD. Pilgrim church, meaning there is no central ruling authority. Um, they had copies of the scriptures, but they didn't have one Bible that they would all pass around. The canon was still being kind of developed at that point. Um, so, and th there's no... There's no united front. You know, you're, you're a house church over here that may suffer persecution. Um, and you're another church over here that may have some communication, but you may not. So Jerusalem has fallen. There is no, we're going to look back to Jerusalem or the apostles. The apostles aren't there, so you can't look to them for authority. You have the scriptures. You have the writings. So at 312 or 300, uh, the church has now become an officially recognized entity it's not the roman church yet at that point but they have authority and they have unity at 325 which was kind of the first major council in nicaea they addressed the question on the canon can you preach or teach authoritatively from these books and you know that's where we have our, our 60 
six books here. Um, and then they would also address the question of, can you believe that Jesus is man or the first created being, or do you have to believe he was God? And, and so they set up kind of an authority. Um, it's a little bit closer to the Wild West, but they're starting to get, this has been settled. Jesus is fully God, fully man. Um, he is co-eternal with God of the same substance. So that's a settled issue. The canon is settled, meaning they're not going to let somebody introduce another book, um, which is why the Gospel of Thomas has never been even considered. I mean, it's not even, you know, modern scholars would tell you what, you know, they just threw out the Gospel of Thomas, but they did what they wanted here and this other church did. It's, that's not the way the church worked. Um, so what happens at this point is there's always errors coming up, you know, uh, uh, say it would be like today, be a, a local pastor in Greenville says something that's provocative, that's shocking. Um, and he's teaching something and someone else picks it up and they start spreading it. Well, then, you know, someone else would say, that's not true. That's not biblical. And they would write back and forth. And then eventually they would have a council. Okay. This person's teachings are spreading all over the empire. So what are we going to do about it? And they would meet, they would discuss, they pull out the scriptures, they would debate for months, and then they would settle on, this is what we've decided. Um, but it wasn't always final either. So it's a little of both. Um, he gave it, when talking about the doctrine of grace, Augustine gave Ambrose credit for his understanding his experience, and, and this is an important one, led him to the emphasis on the doctrines of grace. Last week, we talked about Augustine's confession. And uh, we have this hound here. Um, there's a book or a poem by Francis Thompson called The Hounds of Heaven. And uh, in that poem, and it's a long one, and it's worth reading if you like poetry. But um, in that poem, uh, Francis Thompson is talking about how the hounds of heaven, uh, through every imaginable way, and he's a poet, so it's a much better explanation than what I can say here, but um, is hounding him, trying to bring him to heaven. Um, the graciousness of God in all these different ways and means that they're tracking him down no matter what he tries to do. And that, that really is Augustine's testimony. His journey to salvation was arduous and dramatic. It was long. He was saved at 32. He struggled for years to find answers in peace. He spent uh, 12 years, you know, after he kind of became an adult, went to Carthage, um, about 12 years of his life going through philosophy, delving into sin um, in, in any way, shape, or form, through cults, through philosophers, and then eventually, um, God miraculously brought him to himself. God, Augustine was fleeing God, and God was continuing to pursue him like that hound of heaven. From Tagaste to Carthage to Rome to Milan, where if you remember his salvation testimony, he heard the voice in the garden, tole lege, pick up and read, pick up and read. And he had the scriptures with him, and he opened it up. To Romans, I think, uh, I don't remember the verse, but it was, I got it on the last slide. Was it Romans? Yeah, Romans 11. Um, he didn't have a good life that got better and better. So what, what I want you to do is you're thinking about this, is think about your own salvation experience. 
when you were saved, um, and I, I'll speak from mine, when I was saved, I heard from a preacher and teacher that I was a sinner. Yes, I felt that, but more than anything, I felt like Christianity was the only true thing that I could do. Um, I was saved at 13. I, I didn't have a weight of sin that I was building up. I didn't struggle through any other philosophies. I heard it. I said, this is true, and there's no reason for me to believe anything else. Um, that, that was my salvation experience. I knew from what was taught that I was a great sinner. Um, you know, I was disobedient to parents. I thought and did things I shouldn't do as a child. But I didn't have a weight of sin and other things that I struggled with. Augustine did. And some of you might have that. And, and so you bring that experience with you when you're interpreting the scriptures. Um, Augustine was a rebel. He did whatever he wanted, and he fled from God as many ways as he could until God turned him around and made him his own son. So not only was it his experience, but it was his study of the scriptures. His testimony was confirmed by the study of the scriptures. What he experienced in his life, the scriptures told him was true. He was captured by sin, talking about his former life, and he could not break with it. You remember the, the, the famous quote when he's in Carthage? He says, give me chastity, but not yet. Um, he knows in his head it's right, but he doesn't want to give up his sin because that was the issue. I mean, he, he had a concubine. He had other illicit relationships. He wanted it kind of, but he didn't want it really. He believed Romans 6.20 when it says you were slaves to sin. Uh, you were free in regards to righteousness. He knew and understood that he was a slave to sin and that he couldn't, for all of his willpower, break free from it. He found in the Bible that God came in the world to save sinners, not the righteous. God, and, and that's a key contrast. God didn't come to save the people that are willing to take that first step. Um, people that were dead in sin were the ones God came for. He saves by faith. Faith itself is a gift. Belief itself or faith is a gift of God. We already quoted Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Um, he believed this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. He wanted to end boasting in your own works, in your own steps that you take forward. And this is contrary, if you remember what Christostom said. Um, God doesn't want to take away the power of your free will. Chrysostom was considered one of the best exegetes. Um, exegete is, is a, a pastor that goes through verse by verse and, and clearly pulls out from the text what's there. He was considered one of the best, but Chrysostom missed this. And just so you know, if you listen to pastors and teachers, you want exegesis when people are preaching and teaching. Eisegesis, the opposite of that is when someone takes something that's not really there and puts it into the text, i.e., you know, um, the classic story of David and Goliath, you need to find your Goliath and slay him. That's putting you into the text where you're really not there. God's not calling you to, to go find your Goliath and slay him, you know, my Goliath of hard work, my Goliath of my kids that are a struggle. That's not the point. But that's eisegesis. And um, 
Chrysostom was considered one of the best exegetes. So that's a little side note. So we, we, we've talked about Augustine, his personal testimony. We've talked about how he deals with this stuff. Yes. Um, free will actually comes from Greek philosophy. It, it's, 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 a, it's a very common Greek philosophical idea. You know, they, they, they want to preserve the freedom of men because um, that, that's what makes them men and not beasts. That would, that's what they would argue um, and not automatons or robots. So I think free will, you know, it, it's freedom is one of those blessed things that, that is really, really good. And uh, I think what we would say is they thought they saw it as a good thing. And they didn't want to attribute an evil thing to God. So uh, I will give them the benefit of the doubt that they're not trying to intentionally mislead us. Um, and, and we're going we're gonna to talk about, um, you know, if we didn't have the scriptures that talked about it, we would probably assume because God gives us, us commands to, to repent. Um, he gives us a command to be holy. And so if you're making a logical inference God says to me, be holy because you're holy. Well, how am I going to do that if I can't do it? And so the inference would be, well, obviously he gives you free will to do it. And, and so a lot of it, this comes into what is the, the mystery of godliness? What, what do the scriptures say? Because it is a mystery. Um, so we'll, we'll keep going with this. Pelagius, he's a monk from the British Isles. So it's important that you hear he's a, a monk. Um, experience many times shapes interpretation his life experience what he does shapes how he interprets the scriptures augustine respected him for his piety and his good works he was a good guy he was a hard worker he labored for the sake of the poor um, he arrived in rome he began to work with the urban poor and dock workers he was shocked by two things when he got there so he's from britain um, he goes to Rome. He's shocked by two things. He was shocked that the Christians, the poor and the urban dock workers in the city, they said they were Christians. They didn't act like Christians should. They were bad people. I mean, you know, if you imagine any stereotype of what an urban poor and dock worker acts like and says and does, that's what these people did. He was also shocked by Augustine's confessions. Um, summarily or specifically this statement augustine this is one of his famous quotes he says give me the grace to do as you command and then command me to do as you will he said that's a very shocking statement um he, he would say if you start telling people that they can't do what god commands until god gives them grace and strength to obey then people will not obey if, if you tell somebody that you can't do anything until God gives you the power to do it, then why should they do anything? Why should they change their life? He would say it's an excuse for passivity, for indulging sin, or as, you know, um, Romans, what is it? Let us sin that grace may abound. I, I don't have the exact number in Romans six. Yeah, let us sin so that grace may abound. Um, and and that, that, that would be his statement. He wanted to challenge people's lives. And, and 
Pelagius is a, a monk. He wants to come in. He wants to challenge people. Um, he doesn't want to give them an excuse for their sins. He said, you can do good if only you would. So if you, you want to do good, you can. Just do it. Pelagius, um, and this is some of his doctrinal stuff, he would say that everyone born into this world is born neutral. You're neutral. You're a blank slate in regards to sin. You're not born with a sin nature. You become a sinner because you choose to sin. You choose sin because there are so many bad examples around. That's why you became a sinner. And uh, even from personal testimony, not many of us would be able to agree with that. I became a sinner because I, I was looking at somebody's bad example. You know, I saw my brother whining and complaining and hitting someone. So that's why I decided to do it. Pelagius would say we can actually do good. We have the possibility within us to do both good and bad. He called it the grace of free will. And the reason he used the word grace is because Augustine kept saying he never talked about God's grace. So he said, all right, I'm going to call it the grace of free will. Um, he would say God gave us the gift of free will. That's part of that gift in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. The gift of the commands of scripture and the gift of the lives of the saints so that you can choose to be a good person if you want to. And the only reason you're not is because you're choosing bad. The gifts gives, these gifts give us examples to help us make good choices. Adam's sin did not affect us, except that it was a bad example. So Augustine, by contrast, on original sin, would say that we are both unwilling and unable to do good before Christ. So that, that's his argument. Um, when we're talking about original sin, he would say that there is an effect. Adam was created perfect, but in his sin, he lost the freedom of his will. After Adam's sin, he could only choose evil. Um, free will is there, and, and Augustine wouldn't argue against free will, and this is really, sometimes you hear the term free will versus free agency. Um, Augustine didn't have that language yet but he would say free will is there but it is a will enslaved to evil so you can do whatever you want but you're a slave to sin so you're only going to do what you want and all you want to do is sin um, that that's the point it, it's not that you want to do all these good things but you really can't augustine's life and the scriptures testify that before christ you are dead in sin or slaves to sin you don't have the power to break free on your own. Adam's sin nature was passed down to us. And whether it seems fair or not, we are sinners because of our relationship to Adam. Um, and we inherit it. We can't unbreak or set our will free. We're born corrupt. We're born guilty because of our relationship to Adam. And this is what the Bible teaches. This is what we believe. And if you're sitting here and you don't believe this, then we can have a longer discussion um, because it really does take a work of God for you to see that in the scriptures. R.C. Spall it's not a, a matter of choosing left or right. It's a matter of um, choosing our passions. 
Yeah, it's your passions. It's your, your, the things you want to do, you can't break free from that. So Augustine would say our original sin comes from Adam either, either as a representative man, as in Adam represents all of humanity, or as a real man. He passes on physical DNA and genes. Um, he doesn't pick one or the other. He doesn't, just, he doesn't say, well, it's really just a federal, not a physical. Um, we certainly die as a result of original sin, um, our bodies are corrupted. We're not going to live forever in this body. Said we were born sinners, Augustine would say, uh, and therefore we sin. Pelagius would say, you are not born a sinner and you sin because you made the choice um, because of bad examples that you, you saw. All right. Um, so this 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 kind of verse here in Romans 5:12 therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sin um, this is the the idea of federal headship if you've read those verses in Romans 5 where it talks about sin coming in and death and then righteousness coming in through one man and life there's that contrast um Augustine really believes that sin came into the world and affected all of us through death. What Pelagius would say is that that sin coming into the world is the first bad example. Everybody that sinned and followed after is following Adam's bad example. Not because they are, have a sin nature, but because they made the wrong choice. Augustine on grace, he never tired of talking about gratis which is latin for free or free grace um, the bleak news of original sin is countered by the free grace of god that really does deliver grace is not there to help you merely it is there to save you it is the thing that gives you life god's grace is a gift given to those who do not deserve it nor earn it now, as I'm saying these things, this sounds, it should sound to most of us very familiar. It shouldn't sound like something like, wow, that's amazing. If you're a Christian in here, um, you've probably heard this type of language over and over and over again, but they hadn't heard it then. They, they Chrysostom and the other preachers, um, and I only mention Chrysostom because he's like the, the best of the best. Um, they didn't preach and talk like this. They didn't use the scriptures like this. Augustine said you cannot boast about God's grace. God's grace is given to you of your, uh, without anything you've done. He doesn't foresee your fate and then give you grace in response, which is what many would say. He sees you're going to be a faithful person, and so he saves you. He gives freely out of his mercy, not because of anything you've said or done. Charles Williams in his book, Descent of the Dove, said, God, as it were, determined and predestinated himself to do good in certain lives. This is his grace. So he asked the question, what are the lives in which he does not determine and predestinate himself to do good? Well, he does not. He doesn't. He doesn't do any good in those lives. Those lives are then lost? Well, yes. God saves whom he chooses, and the rest are lost. Um, th this is not a, 
a human approach to a picture of God that, that we would normally have. Augustine, in thinking about these things, because he, he answers the question, um, if God's the one who chooses, then, you know, why are some saved and some not? Because many would attribute evil to God for this. Augustine says God's wisdom, his equity, equity, the equal outcome, his justice, and his acts are all so secret that they are beyond the reach of all human understanding. And uh, Charles Williams, when he talks about that quote, he really means God's wisdom, his equity, his justice, and acts. Um, Augustine, considered the best theologian, you know, since Paul, um, did not try to explain God's wisdom, equity, justice, acts in salvation. He didn't try to go in and parse out every single part to explain why some people are saved here, what was the purpose of this method of salvation versus another. Um, he just doesn't because he believes it's, it's a, a mystery that we're not going to clearly understand. Pelagius would say, does this mean that since God gives us grace and predestines those who receive it by faith, that we can do whatever we want. That's his argument. He said, Augustine, you know, your teaching is just teaching people to do whatever you want. Augustine would say, no, and this should be our answer. Somebody asks, why not sin so that grace may abound? Um, if you're a real Christian, you will love God, you'll be thankful for it, and you will be obedient because out of love rather than out of fear of punishment. I would totally agree with that. I'm just trying to summarize Augustine. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. All right. So um, Augustine would say a true Christian will grow in grace. That, that's his answer. Um, Augustine hasn't got to the identity language yet. That doesn't come till the Reformation. But he would agree with that. Um, he just may not say it that way. So Pelagius believed Christianity should be more like a big monastery full of super Christians, living perfect or almost perfect lives. I remember Pelagius was a monk. Um, in his life in the monastery, he was always striving, punishing himself. Um, he would make himself suffer for the sake of holiness and, and in many sense, earning more merits in the afterlife. He's building his, um, his what is it, the language? escapes me at this point but um he's building his, his kingdom in heaven so to speak his house in heaven um not with straw and wheat but he would say with gold because he's making himself suffer and he's praying more than anyone else and he's reading more than anyone else and he's flagellating his body um that's you know you take a whip whip yourself 
and trying to earn his way into more merits. Augustine compared it to a hospital. So Christianity is like a hospital. Everyone's sick, everyone's injured, but we're getting better slowly and painfully. Um, Pelagianism was eventually condemned and the Augustinian view was accepted at the Senate of, Senate of Carthage. Now that means something at that point, but it really doesn't mean anything at all for the sake of the church. The, there was a revolt against Augustinianism. The Catholic church did not go towards Augustinianism. Um, I say that in their, their interpretation of the scriptures, they didn't follow Augustine. They didn't follow Pelagian. They were semi-Pelagian. Um, they still believed in original sin, which is why they promoted baptism of infants so much, because that was the washing away of that original sin. But that's another issue. Um, the revolt came from the monasteries. They said it was new teaching, which in some sense, it probably felt new. No one since Paul, and they weren't around to hear Paul, um, taught like that. This gives us the famous statement by Vincent of Lorenz. How can we believe what Augustine is teaching? What we should really believe is that which has believed everywhere, always, and by all. What's called the rule of faith. The only problem with that statement is no one anywhere believed the same thing, always and by all. Um, it, it, it just wasn't a picture of real Christianity. But they would say, well, he's, he's teaching something new, and therefore we have to reject it. And he was really teaching something old that they had lost and forgotten. Monasteries were, were full of people working to earn credit. They would uh, be overzealous in almost everything they do. They would deny food, water, the comforts of life. They punished themselves. They wore these things called hair shirts to make your skin all itchy and uncomfortable at all times of the day. Um, they would just make themselves suffer because they thought they were earning credit. And, and some of them were zealous. Some of them really wanted to be holy, but many of them didn't. Um, and so they, they listened to Augustine. The question was, if Augustine's right, then why are they living that way? What do you get from that? So the last statement, I'm glad I made it to it, is when we get to the Reformation, um, many of you are much more familiar with the Reformation than the time now. The Reformation was a revival of Augustinianism which means the reformers quoted Augustine more than anyone else other than Paul in the, uh, the time with their writings. Justification by faith, faith is a gift. Those are um, the, the watchwords, Martin Luther's famous phrase, sola fide, faith alone, not of works, not of sacramental faithfulness or keeping the sacraments, not of going to penance, not of attending mass, not of saying the correct last rites, not of um, by, by the time we get to the Reformation, the, uh, what is it, the coin in the coffer, what's that phrase, buying indulgences, yeah, that, that doesn't get you anything. Um, but the language has also been said that the Reformation, I think B.B. Warfield calls it Augustine versus Augustine. It's Augustine's view of salvation, the doctrine of grace versus Augustine's view of the church. Because in his time, um, Augustine promoted the authority of the church as in where will you go to find salvation? Um, re remember, we live in a post-American individual society, um, post-reformation. So 
if I asked you what church you went to in the time of Augustine, you really only had one choice if you were a Christian. Um, if I asked you what church you went to today, well, you might say, I'm a Methodist, I'm a Baptist, I go to this Presbyterian, I'm, you know, uh, ARP, you know, I'm PCUSA or PCA. I mean, there, there's hundreds. I'm independent, fundamental Baptist. So we, we have this very personal view of God and salvation. And, and that is kind of the, the contrast um, when we get to the time of the Reformation. The personal view isn't wrong or bad. Um, it certainly wasn't, the, the Roman Catholic Church certainly isn't the ideal. And I, I would never say we point to that. But I do think in some sense, we, we should have a little bit better an understanding of how important the church is in the life of a Christian. Meaning you don't want, um, you know, sermon audio Sam, and that's the only church he gets is listening to a sermon and he pats himself on the back and condemns everybody else that's going to church as a bunch of sheep um which is common if i mean in in our day and age the individual nature of christianity is can sometimes take away from the importance of the church but in the reformation this is the last thing i'll say um it, it really is augustine kind of stressing and interpreting and and making clear what the church is as best he could and then a thousand years of extrapolating from what Augustine said about the church. And then Augustine, his teaching on the doctrines of grace and what, what Paul is teaching. And then a thousand years of almost silence um, with a few little bright spots. And then they say, we found it. This is, this is what Paul was talking about. Because remember, in that thousand years or 1200 years, the scriptures start to become obscure. Um, when Rome falls, so does the Latin language. The only Bible that was standard was the Vulgate, the Latin. So reading and understanding the scriptures was a lot harder in those, you know, roughly eight, nine, twelve hundred years approximately between Augustine and the Reformation. So just kind of keep that in mind. Um, Augustine is really important that there's there's his uh, City of God book that I've never talked about more than just a sentence or two. I don't think we're going to get a chance to. Um, does anybody have any questions about Augustine? All right. I'll pray, and then we'll go to the service. Father, we, uh, we thank you that you give men and women to the church that... Uh, you give believers, you give people like Augustine, um, you give them clarity and understanding and that you use them to teach generation after generation so that we can love you more, that we can understand your works more clearly. People that love your scriptures and that teach out of them. Uh, and Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that you keep the church moving at the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Thank you that we can be a part of this great uh, and wonderful purpose. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you're dismissed. Go to the service. It's 11.01.